Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is a really extraordinary day, January 5th, 2020. I think that uh, some of us might have thought that things would have calmed down by now, but no. So here we are really at the brink. Uh, You have uh, the Georgia runoffs today that will determine the control of the United States Senate while the president is still, um, frankly, seems to be escalating his campaign uh, to uh, overturn the election. Of course, tomorrow, uh, Congress meets, and even though the Constitution does not give it any power to overturn the vote of the Electoral College, its role is strictly ministerial. Uh, you have millions of Americans and many members of Congress who are apparently under the the impression that somehow uh, they can vote uh, to overturn this election or to refuse to count the, the election. I mean, people ought to go and read uh, the Constitution, uh, the Article 12, which basically just says that the role of the the role of vice president is simply a glorified letter opener. He opens the envelopes of the legal certifications and uh, the Congress uh, counts them. So uh, that's going to happen tomorrow. It appears that uh, at least a dozen or more than a dozen Republican senators will vote to disenfranchise millions of voters, um, more than 100 members of the House of Representatives, uh, maybe as many as 140 or more, who knows, uh, will also uh, cast that vote. In the end, there's, there. I mean, you know, in, in the end, I don't want to have a spoiler alert here, but I understand that this will fail. Whatever happens will fail. And uh, this will go ahead, except the president's sense of desperation seems to be rising. And I think that this is something that we need to pay attention to. The president went to Georgia last night and uh, where obviously, you know, Senator Leffler and uh, Purdue are groveling, um, saying that they will support him you know, no matter what. It's really become uh, the, the t- our own Tim Miller, the bulwark, has a great piece about the MAGA nihilism. They don't stand for anything other than loyalty to Trump. But Trump didn't go down there, you know, so much to help them as to continue his grievance campaign. And we, we can play a lot of different sound bites, but but I want to play this one because it's really extraordinary that the president seems to be under the impression that Vice President Pence somehow has the power to nullify this election. This is what he said last night. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president... Our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. Now, Mike is a great guy. He's a he's a he's a wonderful man and a a smart man and a man that I like a lot. But he's going to have a lot to say about it. And he you know, one thing with him, you're going to get straight shots. He's going to call it straight. Now, this is from the New York Times this morning, um, the, which writes about the gut-wrenching choice that Mike Pence has to make. There no, should be nothing gut-wrenching about doing your constitutional duty. But they report some of uh, Trump's uh, advisors have helped fuel the idea that Pence could affect the outcome of the election. In an interview with Janine Pirro on Fox News, Peter Navarro, a White House trade advisor, claimed inaccurately that Pence could unilaterally grant a demand by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and 11 other Republican senators for an emergency 10-day audit of the election uh, of the election returns in the states that Trump allies are disputing. Apparently on Saturday morning, Trump called Pence and expressed surprise that the Justice Department had weighed in against a completely bogus lawsuit 
filed by Trump supporters, including House members, uh, seeking to expand Pence's powers in the process. The suit was dismissed on Friday by a federal judge in Texas, whom Mr. Trump had appointed. One person close to Pence described Wednesday's duties as gut-wrenching. I mean, really, you're a glorified letter opener. Well, we have a special guest to talk about all of this uh, today. Um, Eric Edelman comes back on the podcast. Eric Edelman is a former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, U.S. Ambassador to Turkey and to Finland, and played a key role in one of the, the developments that I think might turn out to be decisive, that extraordinary letter by all of the living former Secretaries of Defense. Uh, suggesting that, not suggesting, rather forcefully making the case the military has no role in the peaceful transfer of power. Ambassador Edelman, thank you for coming back. Uh, thank you, Charlie. It's great to be with you this morning. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, right before we started, you and I, uh, right before we started the podcast, uh, you and I were, were chatting briefly, and I said that I just had a sense that the momentum was shifting, uh, has shifted since Saturday. That uh, that there was seemed like there was a rush among Republicans to cast the easy vote uh, to not count the electoral college votes, but that there's been a real pushback. And in the last 24 hours, we've seen not just Senator Tom Cotton, but also Senator Mike Lee, Senators uh, Kramer and Hoven, uh, among others, saying no, um, we're we're supporters of Trump, uh, but we are not going to vote to. Uh, to overturn this election. So do you get the same sense? I just, I just, I just feel that there's more of a willingness to say, okay, this is, this is a mistake. We can't do this. We are not going to besmirch ourselves uh, in this particular way. We're not going to undermine the constitution. Do you, do you think the momentum has shifted? I, I, I do think that I do think that. And I, and I certainly hope uh, that that's the case. Of course, you know, the proof will be in the pudding on, on, um, tomorrow when they uh, have to, you know, go through this um, constitutional process. Uh, I do hope that the letter from the secretaries, uh, um, you know, has had a sobering effect. I'm, I'm sure that that's what most of the secretaries had in mind when we agreed that timing should be, uh, you know, publication uh, in print in the post on Monday and uh, posting on their website Sunday night. Uh, as it turned out, it coincided with the release of the uh tape of the president's unbelievable phone call with Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, which I think uh, heightened, you know, sort of the valence of the concern the secretaries were expressing about the potential that the president might uh, use the military uh, in some kind of extra constitutional way to either overturn the election or somehow uh, extend his term in office beyond what the constitution and statute allows. Uh, you were quoting um, mm -hmm. Navarro's comments to that effect. Uh, I think all of this had, you know, a, an impact, but I think the combination of uh, his, his own words to Brad Raffensperger indicating he's willing to do anything to stay in office, uh, you know, made their concerns, um, you know, more clear. And then there was also this extraordinary 21-page uh, memo by the head of the Republican conference, Liz Cheney, um, outlining, um, you know, why all of this uh, that you were talking about earlier, these efforts to invoke the election of uh, 1876 and the commission that resolved that and all this other, all these other arguments just hold no water and are totally bogus. So, so I think, you know, the combination of all these things, I hope, is is beginning to, you know, turn the tide a bit.
I think I think those three things I think are the, are the most important. Um, I, I do think that the, you 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 line them up: the letter from the secretaries of defense, Liz Cheney's memo, uh, and and the release of of the phone call. I, I think gave people uh, more more pause. Uh, Liz Cheney. I'm glad you mentioned Liz Cheney's memo because it, it is a remarkable document that would have not been controversial in conservative circles until five minutes ago. Um, laying out the the dangers of the precedent of having Congress override the state. States, uh, in in effect, uh, abolishing elections as we know it, uh, and uh, allowing the majority of wh- whatever political party holds Congress to be able to somehow veto all of that. And she's pointing out this is just completely. There's nothing conservative about this. There is no conservative tradition that is upheld by the act of not counting the votes. It's, it's a very, very important document. And I imagine that some of the Republicans that rush to sign on to all of this um, are, if, if in fact they read it, which is, which is, which is questionable, of course, uh, they, they'd be embarrassed. I mean, they might be ashamed to, to, to realize, you know, how unconstitutional, how extra, un- uh, extra constitutional this is and what a horrible precedent it sets for the relationship between the federal government and the dominating political party in Washington and state governments. I mean, it really did shame them. I, I, I think so. And I think Senator Cotton, who then came out subsequently with a statement, um, uh, made that point, echoed, uh, some of the themes. I mean, his statement was much shorter, of course, but it echoed, uh, you know, essentially the theme that it's not up to the Congress to overturn an election. No, that's exactly right. So let's talk about this letter because I agree with you also that the you listen to the phone call and you listen to the president talking right now. And and frankly, it is hard to come away without believing that this man will do anything to retain office. I think he said last night in Georgia, they're not taking the White House away from us. What does that actually mean? Because I don't think he's going to give up on January 6th. So, so there are, you know, certain people out there, the you know, Hugh Hewitts of the world that say, oh, it's, you know, you guys are catastrophizing. It's no big deal. This is Trump derangement syndrome. But if you listen to that phone call and you listen to him, you have a president who is prepared to do anything, as, as you mentioned. So talk to me a little bit about how this letter came about. You have been identified as one of the key players in putting this together. Every living ex-secretary of defense, Dick Cheney, Mark Esper, Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, James, James Mattis, uh, William Cohen, um, every single one of them signed on to this letter. So how did it come about? Give, Ambassador, give me some sense of how something like this happens. Well, um, so my role, I want to make clear, I mean, this is their statement, and my role really was a, a, a kind of role I played through my 30 years in government, which was to be a staff, you know, factotum for for these folks. I mean, I um, have either worked for or with, in different guises, all 10 of them. Um, so I, I guess I was in a position to be able to reach out uh, to them either directly or indirectly. Um, uh, to uh, get them to um, agree on a, a statement. I mean, I, you know, I don't think Charlie, I could get these ten men to agree on what time of day it is today. Exactly. Uh, but um, when it came to uh, getting them to agree that we need to preserve the institutions, the norms, and the processes of our democratic republic, uh, I was able to do it over 
uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, basically within 24 hours. Really? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning, though. I really want to get some sense of how something like this happens. So whose idea was it? Who was alarmed enough to say, we need to do this? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, um, I talk periodically to, um, uh, to Vice President Cheney, because I worked for him twice, once when he was Secretary of Defense as a uh, assistant deputy undersecretary in the Pentagon, and once uh, as um, his deputy national security advisor when he was vice president. And of course, I was undersecretary for the second uh, term of Bush 43, and so worked with him closely then as well. Um, and I would say I, I talked to him maybe once a quarter, something like that. And during the course of the summer, I had, I mean, he knows I'm, you know, a, a never Trumper that I signed all four of the never Trump letters back in 2016. And um, I've shared my reservations about Trump with him. Um, I told him uh, as a courtesy this summer that I was going to be uh, part of the uh, group of former Republican national security officials who endorsed uh, Joe Biden uh, for president. And he certainly didn't discourage me from doing that. Um, among others, Sean O'Keefe, who was his controller of the Pentagon and later Secretary of the Navy in, in uh, Bush 41. Uh, was one of my colleagues in organizing that effort. Um, and <clears throat> I, um, you know, during the course of the fall have, have, you know, shared my increasing misgivings about uh, where Trump was about leaving government, et cetera. Um, when the uh, David Ignatius column came out in the post, and you're going to have to f- forgive me if I don't get the chronology of all this right. Because, yeah, yeah. But- because in the rush of the Trump era, uh, you know, uh, he's creating more news than we can consume. And um, it, 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 you know, sometimes it's tough to keep it all straight. But uh, I think it was last Monday, uh, David Ignatius had a column in the in the Washington Post in which he talked about concerns in the Pentagon about. Um, yeah, December 26th, the day after Christmas, until Biden's win is certified, the U.S. remains vulnerable. Right. And it talked about. Alarming. Uh, yeah, it was very alarming. It talked about concerns in the Pentagon about a potential misuse of the military by Trump. Um, you know, I uh, I served in Moscow as a diplomat, and I used to read Izvestia and Pravda very carefully to try and discern what was going on in the Pentagon, and it's a habit I've never lost. So I read the New York Times and the Washington Post the same way, and it although I haven't talked to David and don't know exactly you know where he got that from, it struck me that this clearly was reflecting uh, General Milley's concerns, uh, and it resonated with things I had heard from former colleagues uh, in the Pentagon. You know, as a former undersecretary, I hear it from time to time from people who are still uh, in the building, um, and it certainly resonated with some conversations um, I'd had with former Secretary Esper since he left government. Okay, let uh, me just, let me just read the opening of this since we're we're at the beginning here. This is December twenty sixth. David Ignatius in the Washington Post starts off by saying, "Not to be alarmist." <laughs> But we should recognize the United States will be in the danger zone until the formal certification of Joe Biden's election victory on January 6th, because potential domestic and foreign turmoil could give President Trump an excuse to cling to power. This threat, while unlikely to materialize, is concerning senior officials, including Republicans who have supported Trump in the past, but believe he is now threatening to overstep the constitutional limits on his power. They described a multifaceted campaign by diehard Trump supporters to use disruptions at home and perhaps threats abroad to advance his interests. Hmm. Okay, so you read this, you and others read this, and... 
it set off alarm bells for me. And uh, I consulted with my uh, my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Tice, uh, Elliot Cohen, who um, is a former student of Samuel Huntington's. And uh, after Sam's passing a couple of years ago, is probably, if not the senior academic in the United States on civilian military relations, certainly one of them. Uh, Elliot, uh, you know, shared my concern. Um, and then I spoke to, to Vice President Cheney and expressed my concerns, and I, and I think he shared them. And so uh, I had been brainstorming with Elliot about the idea of perhaps getting a group of um, former secretaries of defense to um, uh, provide a, a letter of some kind, either a letter or op-ed. Um, I had in mind actually some, an op-ed I don't agree with, which is the one that back, I think, in 2007 in the Wall Street Journal that George Schultz and another one of my former bosses and Henry Kissinger, um, Bill Perry and uh, Sam Nunn did about nuclear weapons, which has had a long and lasting impact. And I was hoping that we could get something that might have that kind of impact. Mm -hmm. Honestly, initially, I didn't really even uh, think that we would be able to get all 10, you know, living former SecDefs on board. Um, uh, And uh, we went to Cheney said, look, draft something up. And let me see what it looks like. And I took a, ca- a crack at it and gave it to Elliot, who, uh, as you would expect, because of uh, his writings in the Atlantic, is a terrific stylist, made it much better, uh, shortened it up, um, made it more kind of, um, you know, op-ed like. Um, and uh, Cheney gave us some feedback on it, which we uh, took into account to try and, um, you know, make it um it's something that others would sign on to. And then I started reaching out both directly and indirectly uh, to the former secretaries. Um, and they all really, um, as I said, within a very short period of time uh, signed up. I mean, I think by Wednesday afternoon, the 31st, I think I had seven. Uh, and uh, uh, by uh, early evening, I had eight. And so I was waiting on the last two. I went to the, uh, my colleagues at the post, um, uh, and said, would you be interested in this? Um, I'm hoping we can get all 10. And they said, we're very interested and, and agreed. We agreed on the timing and, and getting it ready and copy edited and whatnot. And by, by noon on new year's day, we had all 10 signed up. Wow. Wow. So this is very forcefully written. Uh, I want to read one paragraph. As senior defense department leaders have noted, there is no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of a U.S. election. Efforts to involve the U.S. armed forces in resolving election disputes would take us into dangerous, unlawful, and unconstitutional territory. Civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures would be accountable, including potentially facing criminal penalties for the grave consequences of their action on our republic. Who was that aimed to? This, um, this, this reads like a shot across the bow. But who, who was your audience there? So I think um, this was meant to be uh, what we say, calling the Department of Defense supporting fire for um, uh, Chairman Milley, um, for uh, General McConville, the Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, Senator, uh, uh, excuse me, Secretary of the Army, Brian McCarthy, all of whom have made statements uh, using the language we quoted. Um, and I have great confidence in all of them, uh, and certainly all the senior officers, that they would not follow an illegal order, um, and that they, you know, believe what they said that the military has no role in settling these political disputes in a democratic republic uh, with our constitution. 
Um, and I'm quite confident that if they were given such an order, they would resign. I mean, they would they would uh, protest, they would push back, and then they would resign. But you know, eventually you get um, you know further down the chain, um, and we wanted I think to make clear that you know if if you're a a colonel someplace and you get this you know order to go seize voting machines or something. Um, which when you think about in the context of the president's phone call to Brad Raffensperger about, you know, mm-hmm. obsessively talking about the Fulton County voting machines and the parts being replaced and all of this other conspiratorial nonsense from QAnon and 4chan and all the rest of it, um, you know, that you would have pause if you were an officer about going out and executing that order. Cause we do have laws in the United States against the military interfering with elections or with the election officials carrying out their official duties. Well, and we also know that, you know, former General uh, Flynn, uh, the National Security Advisor, had sat in the Oval Office uh, discussing the possibility of declaring martial law uh, with the the president. So the the, the clear message here is that the military would not participate in any sort of a coup, any sort of declaration of uh, martial law, uh, rerunning elections or anything like that. I guess the obvious question is, why did you think that need to be said? Shouldn't that be just so clearly obvious they wouldn't do it? So what was the motive for these guys to inject themselves at this time into something this radioactive? I mean, wouldn't the easiest thing for them to be say, this is obvious. Of course, they're not going to do it. No, nobody's going to. Nobody thinks this will happen. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for them because this is really their statement. But I do note that, um, you know, uh, Secretary Cohen was on television um, yesterday. You and I were just talking yeah, about, about it. Fantastic. And he basically, I think, um, expressed what I believe they all think, which is that this president is unpredictable and mercurial enough that he might take steps that would either try to overturn the election using the military or an international incident of some kind to declare a national emergency or to extend his stay in office. I mean, again, you quoted... Peter Navarro is saying maybe we could postpone the inauguration. I mean, these are all steps that take us outside the Constitution, outside statute law. And I think, you know, uh, Secretary Hagel was quoted in the Washington Post um, on Monday morning as saying when he first looked at the letter, he thought maybe this is just a bit of an overreaction. And he decided, no, you know, we we really should issue this. And I think the regret factor here is, you know, you know, would you feel worse not saying something and then having the president do this? Uh, or would you feel worse that you said something and maybe it helped keep him or others from carrying out such acts? Well, you, you probably saw the uh, the tweet from David Frum that came out yesterday, I think, uh, no, January 4th. Yeah. Um, the letter from the 10 former SecDefs warning against Trump using the military to hold on power causes me to wonder, uh, Frum wrote, has Trump been making calls to U.S. generals like he made to Georgia's Secretary of State, demanding, threatening that they help him overturn the 2020 election? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I cannot tell you whether he's made calls to, to that effect. I can tell you that and I was just speaking to a former senior Trump uh, administration official this morning that um, you know, he's been talking to people. There are people who are prepared to resign and, you know, are concerned that the president might do something. And I think the phone call that was released on Sunday has only heightened everybody's concern. 
So during Watergate, famously, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong on, on my facts here, the Secretary of Defense was James Schlesinger, and they were so concerned about what Richard Nixon might do in his final days that he gave orders to what the he gave gave orders not to follow the president's uh, any any orders that came from the president. Do I have that right? Or, or um, yes, that's that. You know, it is alleged that um, Secretary Schlesinger did. Um, you know, uh, tell the National Military Command Center not to follow through on any presidential order that either involved major movements of troops or uh, use of nuclear weapons. Wow. I mean, are, are we at that point yet? Um, well, we don't have a Secretary of Defense. <laughs> we have an acting Secretary of Defense. And, you know, you and I talked a couple of yeah. weeks ago about this after um, Secretary Esper was fired. You know, I think that's one of the concerns that the um, that the secretaries had as well. Uh, you know, was partly to you know, asked who the audience was. I think partly at Secretary Miller and the civilians around mm -hmm. him. Um, to make sure they wonder what the phone calls to him are like. Yeah. So when, when, when I read David's uh, uh, tweet, I was thinking, I don't think I don't know that he would call the, uh, the, uh, the 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 generals. He calls them the my generals. But I could certainly imagine that uh, that he might call and have conversations with some of his loyalists who are in key positions in the Department of, uh, of, of Defense. I mean, people need to understand that there are people there who uh, under under in a in a normal world would never be in the jobs they are in are there right now. And Trump undoubtedly thinks that he can call on their loyalty. Uh, well, absolutely. We know that there's been at least, uh, you know, one communication between uh, Trump and Miller, and that has to do with the Nimitz and, um, you know, countermanding the orders that Miller had previously given to pull the Nimitz out of the Persian Gulf. I mean, there is, you know, there is, I think, genuine and legitimate concern about uh, Iran um, in the next few days. I mean, we had January 3rd, the anniversary of the strike against uh, Soleimani and Mohandas uh, in, in Baghdad that uh, might have been the occasion for some kind of uh, attempt by the Iranians to wreak revenge on, on the U.S. I think on the 7th, it's the 40th day, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, since uh Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was uh, was killed, uh, the head of the uh, Iranian nuclear program. Um, so there's some concern there might be, a, you know, an attempt to avenge his his death with some kind of action on the seventh. Um, you know, and that's always, you know, a concern that uh, you might have a genuine crisis here of some kind um, that's you know playing out against this backdrop that we've been talking about. But whether there have been other communications with Miller, et cetera, I, I don't know. But the, the thing that was concerning in the Ignatius piece was the uh, recounting that they are, <clears throat> as he put it, trying to understand how to move the levers inside the department to get uh, things done. And you know, uh, one of the levers you worry about them using is their uh, ability to move troops around domestically and um you know, uh, perhaps try and either precipitate or, or use the Insurrection Act somehow, um, you know, carry out some of these crazier plans that you were referring to earlier that Mike Flynn and others have been brooding about. In, in, in retrospect, and tell me whether you agree with this, the, the, the incident at Lafayette Square where uh, the, 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 the president used a force to clear out demonstrators so he could have a photo op at St. John's Church, that seemed to be kind of a turning point, um, or at least it was a 
it was really a, definitely a wake up call to the members of the military. Um, you know, Gen- General Milley um, obviously was deeply chagrined about his role and the way that he was used in all of that. Um, a lot of his comments seemed to be in direct response to uh, Trump's, you know, his 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 co-op, the fact that he was co-opted by Trump for that to make it look like somehow that the military was supporting Trump's effort. Uh, do you agree with that? That 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 loomed large. That looms large in the imagination or the concerns of people in the military right now. I think I think there's no question about it. I mean, both you know, both Secretary Milley and I mean uh, G- General Milley and Secretary Esper uh, did walk back. Um, you know, their participation in the Lafayette Square event. I my sense is both of them didn't quite understand what it was that they were doing when they went off on that walk around, a walkabout with, with President Trump. I, I'm pretty sure neither one of them knew he was, uh, you know, going to be going over to St. John's Church and, you know, wave a Bible in the air uh, for a photo op. Um, so I think both of them have, you know, been careful since then to make it clear that the military has no role in politics. Now, this for Esper became, you know, one of the breaking points. I mean, um mm-hmm. And I suspect what's going to come out is that you know um, pe- people had been deriding uh, you know Secretary uh, Esper as Secretary Yesper because publicly he tried up until that point to uh, you know color within the lines as it were uh, in the Trump administration, which I think he had to do to survive. But my my sense is that um, you know once we get the full story, I think people will realize for about eighteen months he was resisting a lot of stuff inside the administration, which led to a buildup of um, of Trump's concerns about Esper. Um, and you know, and the irony is he got fired in the end of the day not for being you know Mark Yesper, but not for being Mark Yesper. Well, that was among the names, of course, that was you know, raised the eyebrows. You know, Mark Esper and James Mattis. You know, both um, Trump appointees as Secretary of Defense. So the 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 list of of the ten: Ashton Carter, Dick Cheney, William Cohen, Mark Esper, Robert Gates, Chuck Hagel, uh, Mattis, Leon Panetta, William Perry, and Donald Rumsfeld uh, all signed this. Look, you put that group together. And there's a lot of experience and they must have a lot of contacts still within the Department of Defense. So this goes back to the question of what must they, what, what is your sense that they were hearing from people from within the Department of Defense that would make them take a step of signing this, this letter? You know, I think <clears throat> I can't speak to what each of them was hearing, but I, I think what you see is what we discussed earlier, the sense they had about uh, the president, um, his character. Um, you know, we've talked about Lafayette Square. That obviously was a wake up call. By the, by, by the way, there was a letter. I was a signatory. I think it was 86 former senior defense officials mm-hmm. uh, in the post back in June had a letter saying not appropriate to use the military for these purposes. Um, we need to keep the military out of politics. Um I think there have been other things that have happened, you know, since uh, Secretary Esper was fired and this uh, group of uh, political appointees was, you know, inserted into the Department of Defense. Some of those things, you know, you can put a positive, you know, benign construction on. So, for instance, the resubordination of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict to become a direct report to the secretary rather than reporting through my old position as undersecretary. That's been, there's been language 
you know, in the uh, NDAA going back to 2017. That's the National Defense Authorization Act Congress passes each year. That uh, in which they just they just uh, passed over Trump's veto, his first oh. veto override, overwhelmingly. Correct. The 2017 law had, you know, recommendation to do something along these lines to provide better civilian oversight uh, um, of special operations uh, train and equip missions. Um, there's a question about separating uh, the dual-hatted structure we have for cyber defense with Cybercom, the Cyber Defense Command, and the NSA, the National Security Agency, uh, being the head being dual-hatted as both. And there are arguments pro and con for for you know, splitting Cybercom from NSA. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that this was all being done, um, sort of in the last uh, you know sixty days of the Trump administration, with an administration that was desperately um, you know contesting the election and fighting to stay on, um, and the idea that, for instance, some of these political loyalists would be installed in positions, civilians in positions like the director of the NSA, which traditionally been, not, not always, but I think traditionally been a military billet. Um, I think all it's the whole picture, yeah. Charlie, I think that, you know, created this unsettling feeling that he might do some of these really outlandish things that people in his entourage are encouraging him to do. Okay, so you, this is fascinating, and, and I don't know where we're going on this one, but did, did Trump's veto of the defense bill, does it play into all of that? Is there any factor where the president did something that hasn't been done in 60 years um, and the fact that he was overridden? Is that part of this in any way whatsoever? Because it it certainly was one of those moments where the Congress exercised um, very unusual amounts of willingness, of independence and willingness to defy the president specifically on the defense bill. Well, you know, for those of us who actually believe in the Constitution, um, you know, the Constitution in Article One basically says the Congress, you know, must provide for the common defense. Um, it, you know, a lot of the other things that they get to do, you know, they may do, but they must provide for the common defense. And that's a responsibility I think most members of Congress actually take pretty seriously. And there's been a national defense authorization bill, you know, every year that I can remember. Um, and, you know, if this veto had not been overridden, we, the Congress would have adjourned without actually passing, you know, a bill to authorize the defense of the United States. And I think that, you know, members of Congress obviously took that uh, seriously. And I think it shows a little bit that, you know, his power is waning, uh, you know, as the day draws nigh where he will have to leave office, um, which I'm sure he didn't particularly like. But I'm sure, I mean, I didn't discuss that particular part of it. Um, I mean, I did discuss it with, you know, Vice President Cheney, but I didn't discuss it with the other secretaries, but I'm sure it was on their mind because the veto was inexplicable. I mean, the veto was pegged to uh, repeal of Section 230 of the Communications Act, which, you know, regulates um, internet. um, Nothing to do with it. Nothing. But it has nothing to do with the defense of the United States. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that made people wonder what the real reason was that he, um, you know, vetoed the bill. I actually have my own pet theory about that, but um, which I think it had to do with the fact that the bill also, you know, repeals anonymized um, shell companies, uh, Mm -hmm. LLCs, which, uh, which he's profited by his whole real estate career. Um, But, but, but whatever the reason was, I think they felt it was an utterly irresponsible act 
uh, while we have um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in the field. Um, and while we were subject to one of you know the largest cyber attacks by uh, Russia that that anybody can remember, and the scope so that of might have contributed to the sense of of his of his irresponsibility. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, also, at the same time, he's going through, and this is something that's not not a recent phenomenon, but his fascination with defending and pardoning war criminals, uh, ignoring the judgments of military courts and of the chain of command and, you know, taking some actions that were pretty horrifying. I mean, I, I, I think that the, you know, the, everything gets lost here, um, you know, with, with, with everything that's going on, but, but his, his, uh, his pardoning of uh, the, the contractors who were involved in a massacre of civilians in Iraq, that can't have played well with the military. No, I think not. I mean, uh, you know, he has, uh, you know, reached in on multiple occasions and exercised what we call command influence, which you're not supposed to do. Um, you're supposed to let the military justice system, you know, take its course. But he's applied the same c kind of loose standards uh, to military justice that he has to the pardon power more broadly. And I think that has rubbed everybody in the military the wrong way, or not everybody, but most people the wrong way. And I, I suspect it also had an influence. Again, I, I didn't discuss that specifically with the secretaries when we were putting this letter together, but I, I suspect uh, many of them had it on their, on their minds. Okay. I want, I want to talk about what's going to be happening tomorrow. Um, because I, I think it's extraordinary that as many Republicans are going to vote not to count the electoral uh, college votes. Uh, if in fact, I mean, I, I had a, a podcast last week with uh, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and he said it could be a hundred, it could be a hundred members. And, and I had to tell you, it was like a gut punch. And then yeah. of course, within like 24, 48 hours, we found out it's not a hundred. It might be 140. It might be more than all of this. So over the next few days, we're going to get a definitive whip count of Republicans who are willing to undermine democracy on the basis of these conspiracy theories and the cynical grift. And of course, one of the most prominent of them is, uh, is Senator Josh Hawley, who uh, sort of jumped out ahead of the pack because I guess he figures that this is how he could punch his ticket for uh, 2024 um, and raise some money off of it. Uh, but if you could just indulge me for a minute, uh, Ambassador, uh, rather extraordinary exchange last night with Brett Baer from, of all places, Fox News, um, who has Holly. Maybe Holly thought he was going to get an easy interview. But remember, this is a guy who's got a, what he's got a Harvard Law degree. He's supposed, he's supposed to be one of the intellectuals uh, like, you know, Ted Cruz, constitutional scholars. And sadly, Brett sadly, Baer. Sadly, Charlie, it's from one of my alma maters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah OK, I'm sorry. I knew I was going to get that wrong. I just had that. Yeah. Oh, yes. C covers covers Yale with uh, my son's a graduate there too, and uh, covers them with glory. But but Brett Baer did a good job pushing back on him. This is about a minute and a half of of this exchange, and you can kind of hear Josh Hawley squirming a little bit. I'm gonna pin you down on on what you're trying to do. You know, are you trying to say? that as of January 20th, that President Trump will be president? Well, Brett, that, de that depends on what happens on Wednesday. I mean, this is why we have the debate. No, it this doesn't. I mean, the states the by the Constitution say they certify the election. They did certify it. By the Constitution, Congress doesn't have the right to overturn the certification, at least as most experts read it. Well, Congress is is directed under the Twelfth Amendment to count the electoral votes. There's a statute that dates back to the nineteen to the eighteen hundreds, rather nineteenth century, 
that says that there is a right to object, there's a right to be heard, and there's also a certification right, process. Right, that's from 1876, Senator, and it's, it's right. the, the Tilden Hayes race in which there were three states that did not certify their, their electors. So Congress was left to come up with this system, this commission, that eventually got to a negotiated grand bargain. But now all of the states have certified their elections as of December 14th. So it doesn't, by constitutional ways, open a door to Congress to overturn that, does it? Well, no, I'm talking about the statute, Brett. There's a statute that says, that governs what Congress does on January the 6th, and it says that we have a vote of certification and that we have, to, we have the opportunity to debate the results, to certify the results. We count them and then we certify. And my point is, this is my only opportunity during this process to raise an objection and to be heard. I don't have standing to file lawsuits. He can be heard any time. So, so Ambassador, it really is extraordinary because the Constitution doesn't say certify. The Constitution says count. And that's, that's, and that's it. And but it was interesting that Brett Bear pushed back on him and said, "Listen, you, the Constitution doesn't give the Congress the power to simply overturn an election, but that's about what they're that's what at least a few dozen Republicans are going to do." So let me make, a, make if I might, Charlie, can I put uh, take off my ambassador hat yeah. and put on my uh, history PhD hat for a second? Um, so first, well, you're uh, you're a double threat today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I. Uh, first of all, think it's important for you know us never Trumpers who like to dunk on Fox all the time for good reason um, to remember that there are some people still like Brett Baer at Fox who are reasonably serious journalists and and Brett also is something of a, a serious amateur historian. He's written a couple of uh, you know pretty good books, including one very good book about Ronald Reagan and the Moscow summit that uh, Reagan had with Gorbachev, which I happened to be at because I was serving at the embassy at the time, and so. I know that Brett's book is pretty good on that. And so I take my hat off to him for not letting, you know, Josh Hawley get away with, you know, this kind of intellectual sleight of hand that he was trying to, to, um, to perform. And on the whole issue of, you know, the objection and the Electoral Count Act of 1887, um, uh, which was meant to clean up the mess of the contested 1876 election, I mean, I, I studied at Yale with C. Van Woodward, who uh, was the great uh, Southern historian who literally wrote the book on the 1876 mm -hmm. election called uh, Reunion and Reaction. And the idea that, you know, Hawley uh, would be appealing to this statute and, and going back to that precedent or that Ted Cruz, who is a, a Harvard Law graduate, um, would uh, use the electoral commission that was put together in 1876 as a precedent is is so outrageous both because it is not you know an apt comparison to this year's election um but also because of what um resulted from that particular episode so first the, the end of reconstruction the end of reconstruction the abandonment of freed slaves to uh, you know essentially 100 years of terrorism at the hands of the the Ku Klux Klan the the three states that were at issue Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana had, and particularly South Carolina, enormous amounts of um, what white was called white capping. It was the Klan and others in hoods uh, terrorizing voters. Um, you had rival slates of electors, some certified by legislatures, some by governors. So there was an actual issue uh, to adjudicate. None of that obtains today. 
um, after more than 60 court cases. Um, it, it's just, it's, it, it's complete nonsense. It's, it's sort of, the, it's the equivalent of the faux you know, intellectualism that goes with their faux populism. You know, yeah. there's, there's just not enough supply of pork rinds in the world for, for Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz to be able to consume, to turn them into, you know, real populists. Yeah, that that's as bogus, as, you know, as, yes, I, I, I agree with you. So one of the extraordinary things about tomorrow, I, I think, and you did, we all need to step back and just get some perspective. This should be the easiest vote of most of their congressional careers just simply to uphold the constitution. It's, it's a ministerial function. And instead what they're going to do is they're going to vote to, uh, you know, try to disrupt this, this election. And, and, you know, look, uh, there are no, there's no real debate here because there are no facts here. I mean, Portman, Rob Portman, I mentioned other Republicans who've come out against this, uh, said, you know, after two months of recounts and legal challenges, not a single state recount changed the result. And of the dozens of lawsuits filed, not one, not one, found evidence of fraud or irregularities widespread enough to change the result of the election. Even Attorney General Bill Barr said there wasn't enough irregularities to change the the election. So, I mean, this really kind of needs to be emphasized here, you know, to vote against certifying these votes. These Republicans are going to have to give all of these crazy conspiracy theories, these lies, uh, uh, the misinformation, the rumors, more credence than the decisions by all the state and local officials, the canvassing boards, the secretaries of state, the governors, the legislatures, and courts at every level, both state and federal. They're going to have to basically say, yeah, the kinds of things that Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Donald Trump are saying have more weight than all of these court decisions, all of the findings of the Department of Justice. That's an amazing thing that they're doing to themselves. You you left out Lynn Wood in your list yeah. of crazy people who, whose ideas. Oh, he's just completely insane. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, and therein lies, I think, the lasting damage uh, because they will be, uh, you know, uh, giving legitimacy to this stuff, which all of them know is, I mean, maybe Marjorie Green, you know, Taylor Green doesn't know it, but everybody else knows it, that this is nonsense. Um, and they're going to give it, you know, longer life. Uh, it's going to be very damaging, you know, for the Biden administration to try and, you know, take mm -hmm. off some, amidst this, you know, miasma of lies that is being created. Um, and uh, it, it's essentially sedition, really. It's the it, sedition caucus. It is. And I have to admit that I admire tremendously the the election officials in Georgia who've stood up to the president and Gabe I, Sterling, who who had that remarkable press conference yesterday where, you know, he went through point by point by point. So I admired him, but I also felt sorry for him because he seems to think that facts still matter. And what's very clear is that there's kind of this screaming void out there. Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue and Donald Trump, they're just not listening. They are immune to information. They've created this wall. So he's there point by point going through lie after lie after lie with his big chart. Here's the claims. Here are the facts. And it doesn't seem to register with these folks. And so, you know, that's on the ballot today. And, and you know, if, if, as I would expect, the Republicans win in Georgia because they tend to win in Georgia during these, these runoffs, you know, it will be seen, unfortunately, as a ratification of this sort of post-fact, post-truth culture there. And so what, what, what are we left with when, 
you have the truth tellers like Brad Raffensperger and, and Gabriel Sterling, and they're treated like pariahs by much of much of our political culture on the right. Well, and you know, to have people basically say, "Oh, the outrage," you know, on Sunday was not the president of the United States calling up a state election official who's trying to do his job, who happens to be a Republican, and to try and browbeat him into manufacturing votes to allow the president to claim that he you know, won Georgia erroneously, that, that putting that tape out and letting people hear what was on the tape was the real sin here, as opposed to what the president did. It, I mean, it is so perverse. It I mean, is. And, and, and it's, you know, I, you could make an argument, I suppose, that Raffensperger violated the president's confidence if he had just gone out and put the tape out. He only did it after Trump tweeted out a totally false account of their phone call. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're right. This, this, this faux, this faux indignation to actually find out the truth of all of this. I'm trying to think of our friend, David French had a good tweet. He said, so apparently the MAGA line is that it's not wrong to, for Trump to lie about Raffensperger and to press him to break the law. That's not what's wrong. Instead, it's somehow wrong to expose Trump. So it's okay for Trump to fight with lies, but it's not okay to fight back with truth. This is exactly right. Absolutely. This is this is their culture. Ambassador Eric Edelman, thank you so much for for joining us um, and for your your contributions, getting that uh, that remarkable letter together. Which I think uh, we're going to look back and see that as as one of the turning points in this uh, in this rather dangerous time. I hope so. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.